This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone around the world who tunes in here in America and in the different countries. I sincerely and deeply appreciate all the emails you send in. And I love hearing your stories and your guest suggestions, your comments, all of it. Thank you. Very generous of you. Thanks to the Patreons and Matthew Wayne Selznick, our technical wizard based on the West Coast. Today, we have a fantastic guest who's really a phenomenal writer. I'm holding her latest piece. It's Choosing Family, a memoir of queer motherhood and black resistance. It's very powerful and authentic. I highly recommend it. It's also very moving. It's an honor to finally welcome the show, Dr. Francesca T. Royster. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate the invitation. How are you holding up in the world with all the challenges we're facing at this particular time, especially given your situations? Yeah, absolutely. This is just such a a difficult time. It feels like, you know, every every few days there's a major disaster or just natural or man-made. Um, and you know, it's really hard also to um want to shield my daughter from, you know, some of the the horror that's going on, but also really trying to teach her how to understand the world. So yeah, it's really challenging for sure. How about you? How are you doing? It depends on the day (laughs) (laughs) and how much Twitter I look at. I don't watch the news. I have to work hard to find the beauty and the peace and the serenity and to know when enough's enough. And then to just kind of take care of my corner and do the best I can and let the rest of it go and surrender it just do the best i can and it doesn't do the world any good if i go completely gloomy but also i want to feel everything too i don't want to be mr pollyanna guy bouncing around and i don't and i don't take any prescription pharmaceuticals so i'm here to feel stuff like that of course i have a different experience as the tall white guy born with that card and you You've always been the underdog. How have you coped with that? The one who has to work twice as 10 times as hard for all different reasons. You know, I don't have to tell you. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate the question. You know, I, I feel like I am at my heart an optimist and, you know, I, I work, you know, a lot to include joy in my life. And I, I had great models in my parents who were also people who were very giving and thoughtful about others. And they also, you know, sought out joy in their lives. And for my mom, it was, you know, connecting to the arts and connecting to other people. And my dad, you know, is a writer and also a teacher and he plays drums. And I think I learned from them that we have a certain responsibility to ourselves to feed ourselves and to grow and then also to the world and yeah just just trying to balance that has been you know has really helped me and then you know in terms of the different identities as a an african-american queer woman i i feel like um you know that my my lens on the world does mean sometimes that i see what 
what needs to happen and what hasn't happened yet in our world. But I, I, I feel like there's also a really important um, way that who I am is just part of my, who I am. Like it, it's part of my um, gifts and it's part of the community. It connects me to people who are important to me and to a history that I think is inspiring. So, you know, I try to, think of the positive and connect, connect into those things, but also, you know, try to use what, what I have, whether it's writing or teaching to try to address some of the injustices that are with us as well. Do you feel safe when you just move through the world as an African-American woman? I know you live in Chicago, but really anywhere. Do you have to have almost a higher rate, uh, ratio of radar, a, a greater awareness of your space? I think I do. Yeah, I think I, 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 um, you know, I try not to let fear keep me from moving through the spaces that I want to move. Like in my last, um, I just came out with a book um, along with this one this year on Black country music. And that's meant traveling and talking to new people and sometimes being in contentious spaces and actually heading to Memphis in a couple of weeks. And, you know, like, I just feel like I, I have to kind of have my radar around me. I have to have places for downtime and time for downtime to comfort and get my strength um, for interactions with people. But I think that in general, I move through the world kind of with in good faith and, you know, mostly, um, you know, I'm, a, you know, sometimes wary, but just trying to pick and choose my battles and, um, and to not let um, the violence in the world and sometimes the prejudices keep me from new experiences or being independent or, or just connecting with things that are potentially growing situations. You mentioned Memphis too, and we just witnessed another police execution there, or we saw the tape like a week or so ago, but it happened a month before. What are your feelings around all that? And to me, it doesn't matter what color the officers are. It's the white supremacist system. The slave patrols evolved into the police. They protect property, not people. It just keeps happening. What does that feel like for you, especially as a mother? Yeah, absolutely. Like Nichols's death was heartbreaking. And, you know, thinking I didn't watch the video. I don't, I don't usually, but um, you know, knowing that among his last words were once, you know, you know, shouting out for his mother and like that really basic human need for safety and comfort and makes me feel, you know, a shared responsibility for that. And also, of course, for my own daughter and just being aware of the world that she is also moving in as she's, she's now 10. So she's, growing increasingly independent. And I, I want her to be aware and safe too and have and develop the radar that I have, but also not be shut down. But I, I feel like ultimately this case is further proof that, you know, this is less a situation of a few bad apples or, you know, bad police officers. There's something structurally um, amiss, I think, in our current policing system. And um, I think more and more that we need to 
start over, you know, and think about new forms of justice and new forms of um, forms of or of justice that include actual rehabilitation and accountability. And I see in like some of the activism here in Chicago and around the country that there are smaller programs that are already working working toward that. Um, and here in Chicago, you know, there's an alternative helpline that is addressing mental health health issues, and you know, just ways that I think in some spots there's an acknowledgement that issues of crime and violence are multifold and also historically you know connected to to historical injustices and that we have deep social change um and problem solving that has to happen i think or else i think these these cases are are going to continue so i, I think it's a long term and collective battle and um you know, really something that all of us, you know, as citizens of this country need to be involved in and to inform ourselves about. Also, the, the phrase defund the police people reacted to, but we defund education all the time and everything else for people and healthcare. I, we know for a fact, or I would just love to see this happen. Take all that money from the police budget and then also take a ton of money from our national defense budget and just flood money into education, health and resources, mental health, uh, jobs, housing for people, food, health care. I'd literally bet my life the numbers in crime would go down. I, I know it. Me too. And I think like thinking about the title of your podcast, you know, like what matters most? I think that that's a question we have to keep asking ourselves because in a world that's always changing sometimes, what matters um, comes to the top in a different way. So um, I absolutely think that the, the pandemic has revealed the fissures in our healthcare system, um, people, layers and layers of people who are vulnerable um, without adequate healthcare, without the kind of support um, that they need to protect themselves. And then, you know, education too, you know, as a, as a college professor, I really see and feel um, just the first the limits of who's who can get into college and who can go to college and pay for it. And then like the students who sometimes who I see who are struggling still with hunger and, and with uh, mental health care, you know, even even if they're able to get into college, there are ways that institutions, you know, that that students need investment in their whole selves. Um, and so some of the problems that are outside of the university are, are also informing university life too, where there's just a lot of a lot of need and a lot of um, people out there without safety nets. And yet if we just look at Western Europe and Denmark and Sweden, Norway, England, France, Austria, Spain and Portugal, they're already doing it. It's not like these things are beyond our imagination or even physics. Right. That's right. Yeah. We just have to, I think we have to reprioritize, you know, as a society. You're obviously so brilliant. Were you always curious as a kid? I know you grew up with educators. Were you reading when you were young? Were you always asking a million questions? What were you like? 
Well, um, I'm told by my parents that I really liked talking to people and talking to strangers. And that um, that was and that was something that, um, you know, at three and four and five years old, I would just like kind of wander and strike up conversations. So I think I've always been curious about the world and especially about people and wanting to engage with them and hear their stories. Um, I think maybe my first goal um, before I discovered teaching was that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And it was really because I was fascinated with, um, you know, ways that people see the world. And that seemed to me like a really rich way to think about that. Um, but I also, I love teaching because I get to to talk to people all the time and read. And, you know, there are other things that I also have to do as a professor. But um, yeah, I always had a million collections um, as a kid. Like I loved collecting rocks and stones and uh, plants and doing art. And um, we had a lot of music around um, the house, like albums and then different instruments. So those were all things that um, I, I bring with me now too. Like I'm sitting in my office and I'm surrounded by all the things that I loved as a kid. <laughs> so. <laughs> when did you first start writing? Well, uh, as a as a kid, I would write these short stories and poems, and then I would bind them with yarn and give them to people for presents. And I had a pretty strong faith that that you know that people wanted to receive what I had to write. But you know, over the course of school, um, I may have lost a little bit of my um, my faith in my own creative writing, um, and I got more engaged in argumentation, academic writing, and research. Um, and it was really kind of after graduate school that I rediscovered that part of myself, partly because I loved, you know, the people that I love to read and what opened up my imagination for the rest of my work were creative writers and poets. And, um, and so I've, you know, really somewhat recently really started getting back to imaginative writing and creative writing. And I think in my, in choosing family, I kind of bring together some creative and research and argumentative writing all altogether. Um, it's, it's a memoir, but I think it's also, you know, thinking about ideas as well. Was it a difficult book to write? It was in some ways. Um, I think that, um, my my partner calls me an undersharer sometimes. Like I think I I have a like a very along with my optimism, I think I'm often kind of protective of my my privacy. And I just like to, I'm an introvert. So writing a memoir and trying to really get to the heart of really difficult, challenging things about parenting or about my family or myself and putting them on the page was was really hard. And um, I was lucky, I've been lucky to have an amazing writing group that, um, I trust where I've shared some of the, the parts of this, um, this text. And also my partner, Annie reads, reads whatever I write as well. And we talk about it. Um, but I found an early, especially early in parenting when my, my daughter was a baby, it really helped to write things down partly because it felt like it was going so fast 
And it feels so precious that I wanted a chance to just reflect and slow it down and have it for myself, sort of like taking a photograph, but even more so. And then to be able to, to connect um, those experiences to memories in my own history uh, just helped me understand and figure out, you know, where, where I wanted us to go next as a family. So I think writing has really been intertwined with learning how to become a mother and um, has been a really, a really great space. And I, I'm excited about connecting and sharing, you know, some of those ideas with other people and talking to them about, about it like you. Mm. Well, I'm glad you came on, even as an introvert. You're good. You're a good interview. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to steal undershare. That's a great line. Undershare, yeah, yeah. What a great way to put it. How did you meet Annie? How did you guys connect? Well, we, we teach at the same university at DePaul. And so when I came here, this was my second big job. Um, I, what, we were introduced through some, some friends, um, my friend Elsa, who was running the Women's Center, and Annie is a, a professor of um, women's and gender studies. And so it was a really small party that was, you know, given to kind of introduce me to, to people who I might want to know in the community. And we just hit it off immediately. I just loved her energy and her, but I could see how people really also thought so highly of her. And even when I, um, before school started, when I was just getting connected to different community groups in Chicago, when people knew that I was, I was going to be teaching at DePaul, they'd say, oh, um, you should meet Annie. I think you guys will really hit it off. And it was always true. So um, as soon as we met, um, we just found ways to hang out and spend time together and have great conversations. And I just lose track of time. You know, a whole day would pass and we were hanging out together. And somehow I realized, oh, this is like my person. And I, I think because we were, we were friends and we shared so many interests in terms of ideas and reading. Um, I wasn't thinking about it immediately as a romance, but then I realized, oh, I just want to see this person all the time. <laughs> I love it. I can hear the sparkle when you talk about her still. That's great. Oh, <laughs> thank you. When did you guys decide to adopt? And was that a difficult decision or were you thinking we have to do this? Because that's a big, that's an I can't imagine a more important choice, either having a child or adopting a child. Yeah, it was it was major and it definitely changed our lives for the good. It's probably the best decision I've ever made or we've ever made, I would I would say to speak for Annie. But um, we had been together for over a decade and we had um, been able to do a lot of great adulting kinds of experiences like traveling, going to um, Central America, to China and uh, to Europe and, um, you know, sharing experiences with our families. Um, we, we both had um, young children in our families and our immediate families that we wanted to, that we were important aunt figures for our nieces and nephews. So we really melded our families early on and um, family life was, uh, or a version of it was really important to our relationship, you know, together with our, our community of friends. And um, so that's, that was always a part of it. And I think we're, we're also both 
caregivers, um, you know, with our friends and our students and kind of trying to like create a space of um, kind of to feed and nurture people, you know, in our, in our, our house, like people that we, mostly people that we know. But um, so as we were sort of establishing that, I really also just felt like the, the old time clock ticking, you know, when I turned 40 and I had, you know, before I, I met Annie, I had ideas off and on of becoming a mother and I had sort of imagined it as a singular enterprise. Like I would, I thought that would be the no fuss, no muss way to go about being a mother. Just like, you know, find a friend, um, have sex, have a, have a kid and, you know, go through my life more or less um, with this child. Um, and then, you know, when I met Annie, who I really considered the love of my life, um, I, for a while, I was just very immersed in our lives that we were building together. But um, over time, I think that desire to also raise a child and to kind of send this new life into the future became very strong. And, um, you know, we had to kind of talk it through because I think Annie had had didn't really have plans to parent and um but it's so becoming a becoming mothers together actually is so uh so much a natural once we kind of jumped into the idea it's such a, a natural part of our personalities that um you know both of us were on board in a big way and the process of adoption really occurred to us partly because we're both older and, you know, kind of thinking about health and safety in terms of ourselves and the baby, but, you know, also thinking about um, the fact that there are so many um, kids in the world who need, um, need homes. And um, because of the, the laws around um, LGBTQ adoption, um, you know, being adopting from the United States became probably the most um, the most realistic idea. Uh, but also, I really, you know, wanted to adopt a, a kid from, you know, who's from like Chicago or from my community and from because I know I know that African-American kids are often um, in the foster care system or their their place there. Um, and, you know, it's harder to adopt. It's, it's harder for them to become adopted. So uh, we ended up not going with the foster care system and, and using a private agency because we found this amazing agency that focuses on African-American um, kids and getting them placed in homes. Um, because traditionally um, or historically, African-Americans have not been the biggest numbers of parents who seek out adoption, um, although people have participated in um, absorbing kids or, or bringing other kids who aren't blood relatives into their families kind of informally. Um, but the Sayer Center at the Cradle is really interested in thinking about um, really encouraging African-American and multiracial families to adopt. So we worked with them um, really through a system of open adoption, which we both really liked because it felt in some ways a, to give more agency to birth, birth parents 
um, and would also set up a structure where the adoption for our, our daughter would be um, something that we were always talking about and where it wasn't a mystery or a source of shame, but something that's that's part of our lives. So we really liked that that idea and that structure. And um, yeah, and there we are. <laughs> that. Um, but it did, it took a lot of work. It took training. We had to take like a nine months of training. And then at the same time, we were certified by the state, you know, to become parents because there was a period of time where we were considered foster parents um, until our legal adoption was was done. So there there was just a lot of training and inspection and rules. And we also did some counseling, you know, to really prepare to be parents and talking to friends. Um, so it was a really good introspective time. Um, and I'm so glad that it worked. <laughs> they need to train everybody and give tons of counseling before they have kids. I agree. I agree that that would be nice, right? Even if you couldn't do it before you became a parent, I think we maybe it should be something while you're a parent, uh, because we could all use that space to think about what we're getting into and to think about, you know, with our partners, if we're parenting with a partner, how to work together and what our visions are. It was um, really a beautiful time and kind of, um, you know, really, really a great gift to be able to, to have that. Yeah, because it's the easiest job in the world to get biologically, but the hardest job in the world to do. <laughs> I believe that. I think that's really true. And, you know, with my nieces um, who are now adults, I realize in watching my sister, it's like, oh, it's a job that just keeps continuing. <laughs> you know, they're they're beautiful parts of that, but you're always, you know, always going to be a parent. So your role continues even after they're, they're independent and on their own. What are some of the biggest surprises that have been for you as a mother and a parent? The beauty of just everyday life, the things that, um, that are, you know, the things that you see on sitcoms, like, you know, having a drop off or making a lunch or, um, you know, talking about a, a child about their day. Like I, I didn't realize how lovely it is just to be part of um, a child's everyday life and just to see those small things. Um, I also remember waiting um, for Cece to get old enough where we can we could talk, where we could have a conversation. And I just knew that she would be someone who I'd love to talk to. And she is really so funny and um, thoughtful about the world. And just she, her humor always surprises me. She has a great sense of humor. Um, sorry, I'm totally biased, of course. So I think that those like everyday things and the, the discovery of seeing my child grow, those are like some of the most beautiful surprises. Um, and I think that just, I'll just say generally, like Annie and I have this slogan, family slogan that we call, that we just say never a dull moment, because it's really true that there's there's like no time where everything is all even, even killed. And, you know, that change, the change is just constant and it feels very fast paced. So I have to kind of get rid of that idea that okay, now everybody's good and things are smooth and everything's balanced. 
uh, like last week, you know, our car died and our dog, we thought our dog had ringworms. So it's like, okay, there's always something. And I guess some of it is just like finding the joy and trying to stay as even keeled as you can in the face of just constant, constant change and constant discovery. Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that you could feel such deep love? No, that is the best thing. I remember talking um, to my friend Betsy, who's been my best friend, you know, since graduate school or one of my best friends. And she was saying that before she became a parent and she also became a parent later in life, she always thought that she, she was always on a search to find the meaning of life. And she just said that once she became a, a parent, she's like, this is the meaning of life. This is it. I've got my answer. And I really, I feel that too. Like, even though being a mother is one part of my identity for sure, but it's just the deepest, most satisfying part. And it, it just gives me hope and investment in everything about my life. It just energizes what I'm doing. But it also, I think that deep love does also make me feel, you know, the pain of, you know, inequities and violence and loss, like more deeply. Um, and it's made me realize, you know, as a, as a younger person, I may have moved through the world in a more distanced way. Um, but I feel like I, I can't really do that anymore <laughs> because this is the world that, you know, that my daughter is a part of and you know, and our lives are so connected to other people. So I think that that deep love for her has changed my relationship to the world as well. Has it changed your inner relationship to the future and the way you think of what's to come, whether it's the environment, fascism, equal rights, social justice, just having that child, that sweet thing, changed the way you contemplate what what's out ahead? It does. You know, it it, it both makes me more hopeful because, you know, watching Cece, listening to her friends, you know, watching TikToks, okay, not, not every TikTok, but some, you know, I just feel like there's a wisdom and openness about this generation and also just like incredible pragmatism, which I, which may have come out of surviving, you know, the lockdown, but I feel like they're, that this generation's way of thinking about the world and their sense of responsibility for it, it gives me a lot of hope. And um, so I'm really, I'm really excited about that. But I, I do feel urgency to do whatever I can also to help shape the future. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this in terms of writing, and I've, that's always been my mode, but, you know, also protesting, also like, writing letters and just thinking about any way that I can help um, change the discourse. Like I, I feel like we're in a moment where the ways that public conversations about inequities is, is just at risk. And, um, you know, people are being shut down for um, writing and teaching about the history of racism or, um, you know, writing or teaching about um, police violence or, you know, other topics. And so I think that this place where I find myself 
you know, as a as a writer and scholar, has an important role in terms of the future because I think in, if you can't teach and talk talk freely about um, things that have happened in the past, um, it's it it's hard to change those those inequities for the future. So that's partly where I'm I'm digging in, um, but also trying to think about new ways of being being engaged in the world. Um, Cece and Annie have made me more of a thoughtful environmentalist than I was. I think I I um, I love being surrounded by green and um, and nature, but I wasn't really thinking through my impact, you know, on an everyday level. And so I'm really trying to do that as well and just um, just be more mindful. Well, the reason they don't want it taught is so it can't be changed. I, they're so afraid of who we really are. The American myth is really sad and toxic. Yes. Yes, I agree. What's it feel like to have people in the halls of power constantly trying to take away your rights as a woman? for who you love and who you can marry, where you can go, whether you can vote. How do you carry that weight around? It's it's a big weight. Um, you know, it's really something that being born when I've been born, like I feel like I that weight has been not always as heavy. I think that you know, it's it's really kind of amazing when I talk to my parents um, the privileges that I've been given in terms of having some sense of freedom and possibility that generations before me didn't have in terms of my race or in terms of sexuality and who I love. Um, and so I, when I feel things getting heavier, I think about the fact that, you know, I have actually experienced first, firsthand um the possibility of like of freedom of true freedom and i have to use that strength and you know in some ways the tool of optimism that comes out of having some privilege um for good you know to change it but i have to say that also there's just a kind of maybe stubborn or resistant part of me that refuses to live my life by those terms um, and to have the folks in the halls of power always on my mind. Like, I think it's, it's really important to have times of rest and to take in beauty and joy and to not always be defined by that weight. But I also really get it that even though this is an, um, an amazingly toxic time, sometimes there's a, a privilege to being able to move in and out of it, you know, sometimes. And Maybe that's a that's a tool that you know that I'm bringing to the fight that you know my ancestors didn't have. So I want to take advantage of that as well. Yeah, you can't burn out, or what's the point, right? I mean, if you go up in flames, then what about your daughter and Annie and and your students? I don't think the race ever ends. I think that's why you have to pace yourself. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Is the human race even redeemable, though? <laughs> You know, I, I think we are. I mean, I don't know if our resources that support us are are um, completely renewable, but I think, um, or they, you know, if we don't change our ways. But I think that the human race is redeemable. I, I have hope. Um, what do you think? You can't turn it around on the host. Do you think that people can change? 
<laughs> Am I breaking the rules? Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. You've asked me a few. In fact, you want to ask a lot more questions. I could tell you being really restrained. It's like, wait a minute. That's a good one. Hey, what do you think? I'm out here on a limb. <laughs> My honest answer is no, but I think it'll evolve into something unless we obliterate ourselves completely. The earth will yawn. I mean, we may take billions of species with us. We're already well on that path. But I think the earth that just I see as the mother and an extension of this great divinity that we think we're so you know, important, but we're nothing. And but we matter too. It's so sacred. Everything matters. But uh, there's this natural law in physics. And if we don't do what natural law wants, like any species, we go away. Extinction is the rule, not the exception. And arrogance will not slow your fall from a building. Gravity acts on all beings the same. Or if you believe in this or that, you fall at the same rate. And I think not to see it as right or wrong. Things have a run. We had, a, I mean, a short one in the scheme of things. If we have a couple million years. And in an odd sort of irony, the indigenous who were here before us, we evolved into this cancerous parasite, not every one of us, but as the whole, that'll go away. And then, you know, whew, that was something. And there will be like uh, people who are still around who speak of, you know, the great pruning or whatever they call it. Uh, and the giant monoliths will over time crumble and new birds will come into being and other things and the seas will replenish and it'll go on. And I hope the lessons are learned, but I don't believe like a plane with 400 miles of fuel through magical thinking could go 3000 miles. And that's, I've had too many of the climate scientists on and then it affects my thinking this way. Well, what does it matter what the future holds? Does that somehow determine you making the right choice, your best choice in this moment? No. You're going to do that either way, whether you're on the Titanic or if you have five or 10 years or whatever. I wouldn't want to hurt you or your child. So be here now. Wow. Well, that's that's pretty profound. That was off the cuff. <laughs> Thanks for asking. No, I I appreciate hearing that. There's something very um, humbling that I think is important in what you're saying. And uh, I was thinking about the question in terms of human beings you know, having the potential to change, but not necessarily the human race, but just sort of thinking about individuals. But I do think that um, I really am inspired by the work of Octavia Butler, um, who is not necessarily an, not an optimist at all about um, what the future holds in terms of humanity, or at least human as we think of us now. But I think she was also really thinking about that potential of new collaborations, new forms, new ways of thinking about being. And so on some level, I feel like the energy that the imagination, the spirit of that, that can find in ourselves and, you know, and all living things like that's going to continue in some way. And um, maybe it won't be in human form, maybe not, but um, I hope that, you know, there's at least a couple of lifetimes ahead of us, you know, so um, we can get some of the, the brilliant 10 year olds that are with us now to, um, to create things um, for whatever's going to happen in the future. But that's beautiful. And honestly, whenever I see the young people, even as early as 10, 
they're so awake and a lot of them know what's going on with the environment or the politics or the uh, fascism or the buy a house con, you know, going to debt. They're amazing, aren't they? They are amazing. They're really, um, they're really questioning. They're always questioning and thinking things for themselves. And, um, and they're not, well, okay, I don't know, they're 10, but that sense of individualism um, doesn't seem to be at the center always of how, um, how they're thinking about the future. So yeah, I think we're in for um, a great ride, you know, watching them coming to adulthood. And um, I do feel hopeful about, about them, if not everything. <laughs> You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.